Let me just invite you into the challenge I'm experiencing at this moment. Um, because I'm, I'm standing in front of you thinking, how can I possibly capture and convey the gratitude that I feel for the sacrifice that this church is making by sending out the Mayfields? And how can I do that in just a few minutes that I have before I need to jump into this message? It's an impossible task. There's no way. And uh, I'm aware that most of, for most of you, you're just kind of processing through this announcement, and I'm fully expecting at any moment for something to snap and saying, wait a minute, I get it, they're leaving, and that's the guy, I hate him. <laughs> uh, and I would understand that. And I don't want to trivialize your sacrifice, um, but I do want to underscore one point that, that Craig made, that by, by releasing this couple, you are sowing into our mission together. And... My, uh, the, the role that I have the privilege of playing in Sovereign Grace is I, I, I lead the church planting efforts and the church care efforts and the international expansion. So church planting involves the church planting group that Mark Prater leads, and Aaron will be working for Mark Prater as well as myself, and we're responsible just to make sure church planting is happening in and through Sovereign Grace. We're doing a conference that's coming up as well called Plant, and, uh, and so there's just a lot going on in that world. Church care, we have uh, 90, somewhere around 90 churches uh, in Sovereign Grace right now, and on any given day, there's things going on that need serious attention. Uh, international expansion, we're working into 22 nations, and uh, a lot of my last two weeks have just been spent trying to pull together the things for the church plant that we're going to be doing in Tunisia, and you're probably aware of all the developments that are going on in North Africa right now, and we're trying to stick a church right in the middle of that. And I say all that to say that on any given day, I feel pretty overwhelmed, <laughs> and I need help. And can you imagine how I feel that you guys are, are sending me help? I've got an extraordinary secretary. Her name is Erin Rodano. She got married this past July, and, uh, and conceived shortly thereafter and has the joy now of leaving the team and being wife and, and, and mother to her, to her child. And, and uh, I became aware that, boy, we have real needs now even more than ever. And, uh, and you guys, by the grace of God, are, are meeting that need and solving that problem. And I just can't possibly convey to you what that means to me, what that means to CJ, what that means to Mark Prater and the leadership team and the regional leaders in Sovereign Grace. So, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Okay, Romans chapter 4. No, you all are from the south, but is the heat on? just the lights, okay. Uh, before I read the passage that I want to read, I want to take a moment to clarify something, and uh, something in relationship to yesterday, to the weekend we had on the marriage retreat, and I'm grateful it was called to my attention by a, a, a couple that uh, in the church that contacted Craig. Um, you know, when it, it was about the subject of pornography, and, and when it comes to the, the sensitive and painful issue of pornography for women, you know, women who are married to men that might be struggling with pornography. Man, do I want to be careful, and I want to be caring, and I think something that I said could have been misconstrued to lead a few people to assume that a wife 
might be partially, could be potentially partially responsible for her husband's struggle with pornography. So here's the point of clarification that I want to make. Pornography is an internal issue. It's not an external issue. It's not something that comes from outside of a man. It's something that springs up from the man. It springs up from a lustful heart. It's not the result of the acts or the omissions of the wife. Let me, let me just say it this way. A, a wife is never the cause of, of a struggle with pornography for the husband. Wife is never the cause for that. Okay? So, um, guys, while, while we're in this territory, uh, Tim Challies wrote an exceptional book, and I forgot to mention this to you yesterday, but it's a, a great book for men on the subject of pornography called Sexual Detox. You don't have it right now, but Craig said he's going to get it in for next week, so it'll be available in your book area next week. And thanks for providing me the opportunity to clarify that, and thanks for calling it to my attention, because I feel very responsible for the things that I say publicly, so thank you. Romans chapter 4. Um, the title, we're going to begin reading in verse 18, and I'm going to read through verse 21, although I'll be making comments through the end of the chapter, verses 20 through through, through 25 as well. The, the title of this morning's message is Faith for Barren Times, Faith for Barren Times. So, of course, you know automatically from the title that this is a message on faith, And I want to say right up front that I've not chosen this topic because I believe I embody this topic. Um, In fact, I think I need to grow in faith, and that's part of the reason why I'm studying faith. And it's my desire to share with you and convey to you some of the things that I'm learning in, in my study. And this portion of Scripture has been particularly helpful. So let's read it together, beginning in verse 18. In hope, he, that's talking about Abraham, by the way, in hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but... He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for this church. I want to thank you for the way they are, they are making this sacrifice for the mission, the sacrifice of the Mayfields for the mission. I want to thank you for this passage of Scripture that I think will feed us all this morning in a a way that's exceedingly relevant. And I I pray that you would help me to, to communicate and to exposit this passage in a way that serves your people on this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He had already lived about 75 years. That's three-quarters of a century. His name at that time, Abram, literally meant father of many. It's a rather stabbing irony for a man without kids. But he was healthy, wealthy, happy, and surrounded by extended family when one day God interrupted his rather settled existence with an almost incomprehensible command. This is what God said to him. Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. 
and I will make a great nation of you. Imagine a great nation springing from a man with no kids. How does that work? But Abram obeyed God. He uprooted his family, which at that point in his life included nephew and servants and livestock and possessions. And he went forth, as Hebrews chapter 11 says, not knowing where he was going. And as he journeyed, he waited. Every week, every month, he waited. Each year, he waited. He waited for the promise to be fulfilled. Several years later, God kind of drops by in a vision. And uh, Abram was in an anguished state because he was childless. Years had passed. There, were, there was still no heir. And I can just imagine him thinking, great nation. Those words some, somewhat tormenting him. Great nation, great nation. I'd settle for like a great county or a great township. A great nation. When is this going to come about? And Scripture says God took him outside and bid him to look up at the heavens and, and he spoke these eternal words to him as he told him to look at the stars and behold the stars. He said, so shall your offspring be. And scripture says, Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, all of that took place before the long wait before the longest part of the waiting period. First couple years weren't so bad, I'm sure, but, you know, after seven or eight years, the memories grow dull, don't they? You begin to wonder, I'm sure he began to wonder, did, did that all really happen? Did God really appear to me? I mean, Sarai, his wife, is still barren. Abram's just, just aging. At year 10... Mistakes were made. Sarai had to know, is it him or is it me? I want to know who's responsible for this. Who can I hold responsible? And so she pushes Hagar on Abram as his wife. Abram capitulates. Ishmael is conceived. Muslim history begins. But Ishmael is not the promised one. Another 14 years pass. God returns. God reaffirms his promise and changes Abram's name from Abram, father of many, to Abraham, father of a multitude. So Abram is now 99 years old. Sarai, whose name has been changed to Sarah, she's been through menopause. And they have one child. Sarah has one child, and it's not hers. It's the child of her slave, a child of her servant, and he's certainly not the promised one. How long will they wait? One year later, 25 years after the promise, Isaac is born. Now, that's the story behind Romans chapter 4. And if we're going to plug into Romans and do a due diligence on the, the exposition of this book, we would discover in these first four chapters that Paul has exposed the desperate state of human beings apart from God. And he has, he has exposed that we are degenerated. He has exposed that we are depraved apart from God. And from there, he kind of 
patiently and meticulously displays God's answer for that problem in the gospel. And the answer is a righteousness that comes through faith alone. And as we arrive in chapter 4, it's, it's here in chapter 4 that, that Paul, in trying to make this argument, is trying to introduce the strongest and most stunning evidence for the point that he's trying to make to the Romans. So what he does is he takes Abraham, the father, Abraham, the beginning of the Jewish lineage, and he offers him as exhibit A for saving faith. But here's the thing. While chapter 4 is about the faith that saves, it's about the faith that justifies, we are also instructed about the nature of faith itself. All of the ingredients, in other words, for daily God-pleasing faith are seen in Abraham's faith, which is why the writer of Hebrews uses Abraham's example to call believers to persevere through faith in Jesus Christ because the faith that justifies also portrays the faith that perseveres. The faith that justifies also portrays the faith that pleases God each and every day. So I want to look at three parts of Abraham's faith, three parts, three simple parts of dissecting Abraham's faith together. Here's the first one, believing the promise, believing the promise. Verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. So Abraham is put forth to us. And he is put forth as someone who had been told something by God, that he would be a father, that he would have a son. And we're told by God's word that faith responded in Abraham by investing trust in God's words and standing on the promise of God's word as if it is a reality that has not yet been experienced. It is a future reality. It is something that is definitely coming to him but he hasn't yet experienced it. Now, there's a temptation, I think, to read this passage and just kind of think about it super spiritually as if he's just having an experience in God with some kind of angelic being or even with God himself, as if to say, yeah, if, you know, I get this, but if God came to me in a vision and decided to kind of chat with me about my future, I think I could believe too. As if true faith really rests upon a supernatural experience. But the problems with supernatural experiences are the memories fade. They faded for the Israelites who walked through the Red Sea, right in the middle, Red Sea on both sides. They saw it close upon the Egyptians, destroyed them all, and within within weeks were complaining because God wasn't providing. Memories fade. They faded for the Israelites. They faded for the king. They fade for the prophets. They fade for you, and they fade for me as well. Kim and I celebrated our, our anniversary last, last August, and right around there we were in our, our care group, and, and Mark just kind of surprised us, said, hey, why don't you guys give us a memory of, of your wedding day? And, uh, and Kim and I kind of locked eyes, husbands and wives, you know that, you know, when you lock eyes and you're trying to prompt each other with a memory, you know, for some reason I'm drawing a blank and Kim is drawing a blank on memories from my wedding day. I'm thinking, this is the most significant day for me, significant experience for me apart from conversion. And I'm frantically searching the database, trying to grab one story. I'm looking down at my hand. I see a ring. I say, I know I'm married, but for some reason, there's a big drop-off between that day 
and me standing in front of you preaching right now. Even the memory of big things fade. Abraham didn't stand on a vague memory of an experience. God spoke and he believed and he drove a stake of confidence right there. Now for us, the promises of God are contained and preserved in our Bible. Listen, if you're not working your Bible, it's impossible to grow in faith. It's impossible to grow in faith. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's how faith comes, hearing through the word of Christ. It comes by going to the word of God, putting the word of God in us, and accessing the word of God when we need it the most. So let's just take this point and let's let's apply it a little bit. In fact, let's start with the context of Romans chapter 4, justification by faith. Let me say, let's just imagine you're here and you're saying, you know, Dave, I look at my past, and I look at the mistakes I've made, and I look at the sins I've committed, and how could God accept me? I mean, I, I'm not pure. How could God see me as pure? I'm not righteous. How could God ever see me as righteous and at a place where he would accept me? What do I need to do? What do I need to pull together in my life in order to get to a place where I'll pass the mark where God can accept me? Well, this passage speaks right to that because it announces a righteousness that has come from outside of us but has been transferred to us. It has been counted to us. We didn't read this earlier, but look at verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. Listen, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, or from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. So if you confess with your mouth your sins and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a promise that God gives that helps us to believe even when we don't feel it. It's it's something that we latch onto that's outside of the experience or the feelings that we have in any given moment. Let's shift gears. Let's say you're in, a, in an extended season of trial. You know, you've lost your job. Or maybe there's uh, unexpected expenses that are coming in. And, and you begin to feel that, that gnawing anxiety in the pit of your stomach. You know what I'm talking about. You know, those times where we, we just find ourselves waking up in the middle of the night ruminating over scenarios, wondering if we're going to make it, fears fomenting within us, worry all around us. Well, in that moment, faith doesn't say, God, appear to me in a vision. Faith says, God has revealed himself in his word. And so let me go to his word to hear a promise for my problem. And maybe you can be led to Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, it's, it's there in the word of God that we encounter this extraordinary promise for necessary provision in the moment we need it. Say so you're here as a, as a teenager, 
And in your opinion, your parents aren't honorable. Now, your, your perspective may be off the rails, but in your world, in the way you're thinking, your parents aren't honorable. But then we go to Scripture, and the fifth command commands us to honor our mother and father. In fact, Ephesians calls that command the first command with, with a promise that it may go well with us, honor your mother and father, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that God has given you. So the Word of God calls us to act in the present, even if we don't perceive it, calls us to act in the present, even if we don't want to, calls us to act in the present, even if we don't feel like it, calls us to act in the present with honor because we believe in a future promise. See, it's about allowing Scripture to be the loudest voice that we listen to. Because to be alive today is to have voices always speaking to you. Our fears speak. Our circumstances speak. Our enemies speak. Our suffering speaks. And faith, what faith does is faith trusts what God says about the future more than what those voices say to us in the present. So let me ask you, what what voices matter most to you? Abraham had to wrestle through that. In fact, the answer is supplied for us in verse 21. He was fully convinced. He became eventually fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. In other words, he rested in a settled conviction. His heart was fully convinced. You know why? Because God said it. It was God's word and his word alone. Great quote by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He wrote, quote, There is always this naked element in faith. It does not ask for proofs. It does not seek them. In a sense, it does not need them. Faith is content with the bare word of God. Oh, how I want to be content with the bare word of God. Second point. Believing the promise, embracing the circumstances. Embracing the circumstances. Verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. You know what I love about this description is that it links faith to reality. It links faith to reality. In other words, there's no denial of the problems here. There's no spin. There's no dumping or avoiding of the evidence. There's... Only just this unvarnished assessment of how bad things really were. In fact, it starts in verse 18 with, in hope, he believed against hope. That's just another way to say it was pretty hopeless. It was pretty hopeless. There's no attempt to avoid the raw truth because the raw truth might reinforce negative thoughts. And so let's not talk about this the way that it really is. Let's avoid reality because reality is too painful or reality will reinforce the wrong thing or stir unbelief in us. See, there, there's a body of, of faith teaching that assumes that voicing the reality of a situation is actually empowering the problem or that it's emboldening the enemy, emboldening Satan. And it just makes, how can I say this sensitively? It just makes lunatics out of Christians. It makes us lunatics. No! (coughs) 
I'm not sick. I'm not sick at all. It only appear, I only appear to be throwing up blood here. I already have all the healing I need. Well, well, buddy, if that's your healing, you need to trade it in for another one because that one ain't working for you. Isn't this a refreshing passage? Verse 19. Abraham is considering the reality of where things really are. And he doesn't weaken in faith. He considers his own body, which is as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. He looks at his wife and considers her barrenness, the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So Abraham is considering the circumstances. He's considering the reality. And to be honest, the results aren't pretty. I mean, Abraham, he says, you know, I look in the mirror each morning and I'm looking in the mirror at my body and my body is as good as dead. Now, because he's a guy, he's saying, yeah, it's a dash kind of hip kind of dead. (laughs) But it's dead. Better than any other hundred year old kind of dead. But it's still dead. And he's looking at Sarah, and she's, he's saying she's 90, and she's beautiful, she's a babe, but she's barren. She's a barren babe. <laughs> do, do, do you get what's being said here? This is what this section of Scripture is meant to communicate. You look at Abraham, it's impossible. You look at Sarah, it's incomprehensible. Everywhere you look is dead. There's no seed, no hope, no way, no life. The circumstances convene as a jury and they return with this verdict. It's impossible. There is no life. Do you see what's, what's being said here? Abraham believed when there was no life. Do you have any areas of your, of your existence right now where you are just burdened by an absence of life? Whereas you take an honest account of where things really are, the circumstances reveal a barrenness. You're looking at Sarah, and you're honestly saying, yeah, you know, it's been years. It's barren. You've been praying for this person you love, and honestly, you look, and there's no interest, no change, no power, No life. You've been dogged by this sin since you've been a teenager. And yet to honestly say, to honestly admit, there's, there's just no strength, no power, no change, no life. You want to give more. You, you feel like God's calling you to be generous to the poor. But you look at your, you look at your checkbook and there's no extra, no buffers, no miracles, no life. You look at your child. You look at your teenager. And you think, they've been given so much by God, and they're bearing so little fruit for God. And I look, and I have to honestly admit that there's no zeal, no heart, no interest, no life. All around me is barrenness. Who can relate to that? God says, Abraham can relate to that. And not just for a short season either. Twenty-five years. In fact, if I'm reading this correctly, it appears as if God intentionally waited until it seemed too late. Think about it. I mean, the problem is not just barrenness, but, but age. It's not just an absence of life 
Well, there's an absence of life, but there's still the potential that we can produce life. No. There's an utter inability to produce life. His body is as good as dead. Her condition is barren. It's all there intentionally. Remember verse 18? In hope, they believed against hope. It was pretty hopeless. God brought them to a place where it was evident to them and everyone else, this is way beyond man. This is way beyond me. If there's going to be any change whatsoever, it's going to be because God and God alone intervenes. There has to be some kind of outside supernatural intervention. It has to be something that comes from God. Maybe you're here today and you, you honestly don't know if you're a Christian or you would say, yeah, in all honesty, if I'm like Abraham and I'm taking an honest account, I'm, I'm not a believer. And, but you feel like you have to kind of clean up your life before you come to Christ. And, and this is a real tripping point for you because you feel like you can't come to him. You can't bring him what you are. You, you know, you kind of relate to conversion like like going through customs. You ever go through customs, travel in, internationally, and you go up and, you know, you're, you're in the line for the customs agent. You're trying to pull all your papers together and make sure everything is stamped. And do I have everything I need? Because I'm going to go up and he's going to either approve it and stamp it and let me into the country or else I'm going to be sent to the back of the line or sent to get more. And, and we kind of relate to it that way. Like we just have to pull all of our life together, everything stamped, everything in order so that we can present them to the custom agents and we can get into God's country not realizing that we get into God's country through the paperwork of another. It's not our paperwork whatsoever. It's somebody else that actually stepped up to the custom agent. Jesus Christ stepped up to the custom agent, handed him his papers, and we get into the country based upon his works and his performance. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're just waiting. You have a promise. And you're waiting for a promise to be fulfilled. And, and God is just at work in your life, removing you so it will be all of him. I mean, do you, do you get how God acted with Abraham and Sarah? He, he didn't act on his word until he alone would be the answer. He didn't act on his word until he alone would get the glory. And as a result, Abraham had this remarkable transformation in his life. Abraham was a man was a human being, just like you and just like me. He struggled greatly with faith. He wrestled with unbelief. He was not all that he would be. But he ultimately went from being circumstance-centered to being promise-centered. There was this transformation that took place in his life so that it could be said of him, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. And it goes on to say in verse 21, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham embraced reality, and, and we need to do it as well, because that's the backdrop upon which God is going to move. Which leads us to our third point, sustaining the trust. Sustaining the trust. Verse 20 talks a little bit more about that transformation I was just talking about. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. He grew strong. He wasn't strong. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So there's this, this transformation 
that began to take place as he waited. As one year passed to another, he waited. And Abraham came to a place where it was actually the unchanging circumstances that altered his faith. Isn't that funny? He met God in barrenness. So often for me, you know, I'll struggle, 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 unbelief, 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 lack of faith, and then this breakthrough in the situation. And then I look back and I think, oh, yes, God was at work all along. Abraham met God, grew in faith, and learned to glorify God before the circumstances even changed. And I'm quite certain that he passed through all the different stages that you and I have to pass through when promises remain unfulfilled. He probably denied the, the, re, the reality of the circumstances at first, was angry at God, demanded that there be changes, eventually leading to a kind of acceptance and ultimately giving, giving birth to an anticipation that God would move so that he was giving glory for a promise that he had not yet received. All of this entire description takes place before he received what he promised, before the fulfillment of the promise, because he was standing on the word of God rather than on his circumstances. And so what happened was, The result was that whilst Abraham's circumstances didn't change, his faith did. His faith grew stronger. It loosed his tongue. Isn't this an interesting section here? No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Think about this. He grew strong in his faith. What what year was it? I don't know. Was it like... Year 12, that he turned a corner? I don't know. He grew strong in his faith. What began to happen? Well, he began to give glory to God. What year was that? I don't know. Was it 14, 17? Was it 20? I don't know. But somewhere along the line, this man began to have a transformation where he was was giving glory to God, and he began to grow in his faith and grow in his anticipation, even though his circumstances hadn't changed. Have you ever noticed how sometimes it just pleases God to fix a pain and a promise in our life at the same time? And to have that pain play out over a long period of time? I mean, remember, Abram, you know? Abram meant father of many. That's what he was named when he was born. Abram, father of many. Would that raise some expectations in the heart of a kid? I mean, I'm sure as a kid, that was a source of pride for him, a a kind of proclamation of a prodigious future, which is just another way to say he, he expected to have tons of kids, strapping boys and dainty girls and a huge family. And so Abram just is growing up and he eventually takes a bride and they start their life together and the kids don't come. A few years pass. You know, they're, they're encouraging one another. It'll come, honey. It'll, A child will come, kids don't come. Five years, ten years, fifteen years, kids don't come. Facebook profile reads, father of many, still no kids. Kids don't come. I imagine it was worse when the caravans came through, because Abram was wealthy. I mean, he was the owner of wells. 
water wells for miles around. And, and it was customary back then for travelers to pay a well use fee, and then they would visit the owner of the well, and there would be this customary, inevitable exchange. What is your name? They would come in and announce. What is your name? This probably happened thousands of times. What is your name? I am Abram, father of many. I am Abram. Congratulations, Abram, father of many. Where are your children and how many sons have you? I have none. Thousands of times, I have none. I'm sure some of you here can relate to the pain and the disappointment and the monthly demoralizing morass from wanting but not having children, from wanting but having to answer the question, no, I'm sorry, we have none. Eventually it became so bad for this couple that Sarai pushes him into the arms of another woman, perhaps even out of the bitterness of wanting to see who was really at fault. Let's see who lacks life here. Is it you or is it me? We're going to settle this right now. Hagar. I have none. Well, sure, there was a promise. But it took 25 years. In fact, toward the end, at year 24, all they had was Ishmael and a promise. God changes his name from, from Abram father of many, to Abraham, father of a multitude, father of many nations. He's being upgraded, and still all he has is a son of a slave and a promise. Listen, please don't imagine that this wasn't a source of shame for this couple. Please don't imagine that this wasn't a source of difficulty and rude comments and something that God was doing in their life that could be produced in no other way than having to say repeatedly, I have none. It hasn't happened yet. God hasn't fulfilled his promise. I know there are promises, but we're still barren. This area of my life is still barren. This thing I've been praying for is still barren. Please don't imagine that this wasn't essential to what God was doing in Abraham's life, that ultimately this would create a work so deep that it, it stirred a confidence in a man who was ultimately willing to sacrifice what he had waited 25 years to obtain. He was willing to sacrifice Isaac before God in a way that foreshadowed the sacrifice of the Son of God, trusting that God would raise him up because he had such a faith that was purchased in the 25 years prior to Isaac being born. It forged a man of whom it could be said in verse 20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Let me ask you a question this morning. How how are you doing in this season between promise and fulfillment? Are you patiently waiting for God? Or have you been conceiving some Ishmaels? You know, in Galatians 4... Paul says Ishmael symbolizes the child of the flesh. Ishmael symbolizes a a self-sufficient choice that displaces God. Those times in our life where you say, I'm done. 
no, no, I've done the thing with you, and I've waited long enough, and I'm, I'm going to jump off the track here. I'm going to produce this my own way, God. Ishmael's happen when impatience joins unbelief. Ishmael's happen when impatience joins what I want and when I want it, my demand. And so we can't afford it, we don't really need it, but we want it, and so we slap a credit card down and we buy it, and we've been paying for it ever since. It's Ishmael with interest. He's not a Christian. Oh, but he's so close to being a Christian. And so I'll marry him. Oh, she's, she's a believer, but boy, she, she believes a lot of different things about doctrines that are really important to the faith. But you know what? She seems like she's the only girl around. And so I'll, be, I'll marry her. And fast forward 10 years, and I've been living with that mistake for years. It's, it's Ishmael with irreconcilable differences. Or if I just tell this little lie, if I just fudge this report or shade this truth or confess just half of what I really need to confess, then I will get what I want. Then I will get the promotion or the forward progress. Then I'll get my, my parents off my back or I'll get out of trouble or I'll, or I'll keep my secret concealed. But we don't see how it deadens our soul and obscures the promises of God. It's Ishmael at any cost. And for some people, their, their Ishmaels stare at them each and every day. It's a kind of daily reminder of the fruitlessness of our own effort. But you know, if that, if that discourages you, I want you to think about this for a second. Abraham is being offered to us in Romans chapter 4 as someone who got faith right. And Ishmael is embedded in his story. In other words, Abraham is not presented in Scripture as someone who's perfect. He's presented in Scripture as someone who points forward to someone else who is perfect, points forward to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And because Jesus lived that perfect life and died that substitutionary death and rose on the third day, he has the authority and the power to redeem us and to reverse the effects of Ishmael in our life, to transform us even though we have made choices apart from God, that we have jettisoned God at times and pursued our own way. And that means that our fleshly choices, those places where we didn't trust God, they no longer need to define us. We, we don't need to spend years trying to atone for the mistakes that we've made, trying to atone for the sins and for the Ishmaels, because we can look to the atonement of another. Because as it says in verse 23, but the words, it was counted to him, were not for, written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It would be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So, like Abraham, our Ishmaels may live on. They may live on, but they're written into a bigger story. A bigger story that includes the cross. A bigger story that includes the regenerating power of the Spirit. A bigger story where God redeems us despite our past and despite our sins and despite our failures and despite our Ishmaels. And you know what? Abraham trusted this. 
It was how he was able to, quote, grow strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. May God help us to see the Savior that way. May God help us to see the Savior so clearly that the promises are more real than the circumstances. And so we can then give glory to God right here and right now, not because our circumstances have changed, but because our faith has. Let's pray.